It's the MMA Geeks C-Level Podcast with your hosts, Stan Dryav and Nick Bracha. Welcome to the MMA Geeks C-Level Podcast. Your host, Stan Dryav, my co-host, Nick Bracha, here to break down this weekend's UFC 251 Masvidal versus Usman. I like how I put Masvidal first in there, Nick. And we're going to quickly go over last weekend's Hooker versus Poirier card. Nikolai, how are you, buddy? Good to hear your fucking voice. Yeah, I'm all right, man. It's a great week for mixed martial arts. And two weeks ago wasn't so bad either with that fight of the year candidate uh, main event. Also coming out of that card, you and I, are, we tied. So we are now 2-2-2 two, two, and two in the last six events over approximately eight weeks. So that's two months of being dead even with me. So it's uh, there's a really good chance that your reign of terror is ending. And I'm fairly confident I am going to put my shoe up your Uzbeki ass. God damn, Nikolai, coming in with the heat this this time. I like it, Nick. I like it. And you know what? I I have to congratulate you a second episode in a row. A second draw for you, buddy. That's literally about as good as your performances get. I'm proud of you, man. I'm proud that you're actually competing with me and and not letting me ragdoll you as has become the custom on this podcast. Hey, baby, in the the last six events, you are in the same lukewarm, mediocre hot tub that I'm in. So come on, stay in here, baby. The water's nice. I'm proud of my picks overall. I went eight and two on that last event. I think uh, you went either six and four or seven and three. Either way, solid, solid picks by both of us. But yeah, I mean, it's been competitive lately, and that's why I'm congratulating you because I think being competitive with me is really quite an accomplishment, Nick. Well, yeah, you are. You're really tall. All right, let's. Uh, <laughs> so, what did you make? What did you make of Hooker Poirier? It was a goddamn good fight. It's a shame. It's a shame for these two guys that Weili Zhang versus Joanna Janjacek happened this year because they will not win fight of the year for that reason, I think. But Dustin Poirier, Dan Hooker put it all out there, man. They went to absolute war. I thought that Dan Hooker may have had the edge in the first couple of rounds. And then Dustin Poirier started to take over more and more as the fight went. Dan Hooker was getting more weathered, more tired. And Dustin was able to really mop the floor with him in that fifth round, really take over by that point. You know, I I said last week about his five-round experience, how that could make all of the difference, how his grit just makes a huge difference, even though Dan Hooker has arguably taken less punishment through his career. And that's how it turned out, Nick. You and I both had Dustin Poirier in that one, and he came through for us. Yeah, looking at that fight, for me, that fight comes down to a word I've used here. Maybe it's cliche. Maybe it's insightful. Composure. Uh, Dustin had incredible composure, even when uh, Hooker was was storming in the first uh, in the first round and a half or so. Dustin was always zoomed out to the bigger picture of the larger fight, whether that meant um, you know different different looks he was going to have to give, different areas of the cage to get to. Always aware of his body's resources, he never. There wasn't a moment in that fight where he lost his composure or lost control of the fight's narrative. He took some flurries, but he was able to zoom back out and really run the overall narrative of the fight. Whereas um, Hooker fought terrifically, but he he always looked like he was kind of in the fight of his life. Like he didn't he, he didn't seem like he had. Um, necessarily a plan, a plan C, D, or E. Didn't seem like he had necessarily quite the same uh, gas tank. And you could see just by their disposition and the look on their faces as we got to the second half of round three, round four, and round five, Dustin was complete confidence and, you know, focus. And then in that last corner, uh, you know, check in with his, the check in with his, with his corner man, he said, he said, how you doing? He said he's having a blast. He just he just looked in charge. And I think that I think that keep, keeping one's head about you in a fight more than anything, maybe it means that you are aware of exertion uh, of energy of what you got. And it was just it's terrific gamesmanship. It's it's master planning. And, you know, he was he was he was the commander of uh, uh of himself of his resources and of that octagon 
and I think he it was a it was a it was a close fight. And Hooker has a ton of skills, but I think that's just a question of fight maturity, experience, and like I said, composure. And we think composure is preparation and confidence. I'm not saying Hooker doesn't have those things, but um, I think Dustin's further. It's just it's just a little bit further ahead in the game, and his head seems to be in a really great place following uh, that lo- that loss to Khabib. I don't think I'd ever seen him uh, seem. Uh, as confident. I mean, he was pretty confident in the Max fight and had great composure there, but uh, I just thought it was a masterful uh, performance. I'd love to see him fight. uh, I don't know about seeing him fight uh, Khabib again, but I'd love to see him fight uh, Gagey or especially Connor, but who knows if that'll happen. Yeah, Poirier improves to 10 and 2 at lightweight, which is extremely impressive considering how high level that division overall is. And he's competing at the very top of it. Hooker falls to 7 and 2 in the division, which is still very respectable. Uh, both actually started their UFC careers at Featherweight, so really goes to show the, uh, the improvements they've had to make in order to compete at this higher weight division. But yeah, I think you're right. Uh, one of the things I mentioned last week was how Hooker has been through those rough moments in the middle of a fight and had to come back and win the last round or two in order to clinch himself the win. Uh, I think it was kind of the same thing against Max Holloway, um, and he did it here once again. It just, you know, it's, it's tough for a guy like Hooker to have the endurance this deep into his career without necessarily the five-round experience. Uh, and, you know, that combination kind of failed him. I will also say that Eugene Behrman, who is the head coach at City Kickboxing, he spoke a little bit about how wear and tear really has a long-term effect on a fighter and how some fighters are just not quite the same. And he mentioned Dan Hooker as one of those guys, which I found to be rather fascinating considering his overall success. But just kind of goes to show you that Dan Hooker is probably not going to making major improvements at this point into his career this deep into it which is unfortunate for the guy because he's absolutely at his best now, arguably a journeyman at at one point much earlier in his career. So, yeah, it's a shame that his skill level being at its highest point kind of coincides with him having taken so much wear and tear over the years. Yeah, I mean, well, even just recently, the the Barbosa fight and the Felder fight, it's a lot of it's a lot of strikes to take before this this fight. I mean, maybe maybe he's a guy that takes 14 months off. I don't know if he'll do that or not, but um Anyway, he's a he's a he's a terrific fighter. It's been fun to watch him um, essentially level up over the last couple of years, um, and with the change in weight class. But uh, I'm you know I think he's going to hang around the top five in that division for a while. Yeah, yeah. I, I think I mean uh, top five might be uh, if you're talking about Hooker. Top five might be a little bit strong, but I think I think top fifteen, uh, top ten is really more, more realistic. Who, well, who do, well, who do, well, you got you got Khabib, you got Dustin, you've got Gagey. Um, uh, but, but, but who else, I mean, who else do you, who else do you put above him? I am pulling up the lightweight rankings right now. We've got Tony Ferguson is above him. Conor McGregor, yeah, yeah. unfortunately, if only uh, because of his name is above him, I, even though he I'm not even, I'm not be. sure he's, I'm not sure he's a lightweight. He hasn't fought, he hasn't fought much at lightweight the last three years. Has he fought at all? To be honest with you, Nick, I think he's literally only had one fight at lightweight, and that was his championship win against Eddie Alvarez. I don't. It, think yeah, that was like that was like wasn't that four years ago or something? So, so yeah, I'm, I'm largely there with you. I would love to. I think it would be fascinating to see Dan Hooker face off with Charles Oliveira. Uh, I, I just feel like for Charles Oliveira, this would be like his entrance into the very upper echelon. If he can yeah, finish Dan Hooker think- like he's been finishing everyone else, I mean, that would be incredible. I think Hooker wins that fight, but that's a story for another. That's a story for another podcast. Yeah, I wouldn't be. I wouldn't be terribly surprised if he does. But man, Charles Oliveira is extremely dangerous. Oh, yeah. We got guys like Diego Ferreira, who's on his way up, who's probably going to be taking his spot in that top five in the near future. And then you know, guys like Drew Dober, who are kind of on their way and and kind of working their way in that direction. But look, I think Dan Hooker, long term at top five at lightweight, is going to be tough to pull off. He just doesn't seem like he's ready for that true upper echelon. And let's face it, most people think that he did not deserve his last win over Paul Felder, his only other five round fight. Right, right, right. And Paul Felder's never truly shown himself to be the you know top five material. The, the not elite certainly guy. not. Either, Certainly so. not, right? Back back end of the top 10, sure. Yeah, yeah, I would agree with that. I just feel like Dan Hooker's resume, as much as it's filtered, uh, filled with a bunch of solid kind of upper echelon prospects, he's never really beaten a contender. Paul Felder's a good win. Ally Quint is a good win. James Vick is a decent win. And obviously Gilbert Burns before that is impressive, but but these are not guys that are at the top when he's beating them. They're no, guys right. that Those are, are maybe top on their guys. way or... 
Yep. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, so yeah, I, I think he's honestly fortunate to be number five at, at as of this standing. I, I think it's a little bit surprising that he's that high. I would have probably ranked Charles Oliveira over him just because of the huge streak that he's on. But, I mean, you know, he he's uh, he's certainly one of the top fighters in the world. It's a question of scalps. Oliveira just doesn't have the scalp. This quite the same scalps yet, or like co-main event and main event fights. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree. Uh, the only other thing I think that might be worth a 30-second discussion is Mike Perry, who ended up winning without a coach. I mean, he beat a mid-level UFC fighter at best, and I hear that he can do that without a coach, but I still wonder how he's going to do in the near future. He did talk about moving down to South Florida, training with some of those American top team guys. I'm not sure if he's planning on joining the team fully, but uh, you got to give credit, I suppose, to his girlfriend, who is now undefeated as a corner person in the UFC. Yeah, and by the way, here's an entertainment pitch for you, Stan. You know that I work in sometimes like in and out of quote the business. Yes, right? sir. <laughs> it's a ridiculous <laughs> term. Here's a show. I want to watch Mike Perry going over to the UK to track Darren Till. <laughs> I that would be great. <laughs> watching Perry, watching Perry and his girlfriend fish out of water, interact with the culture while while going to pubs and asking people if they know Darren Till. I would watch that for days. What do you mean? Do I want Triscuits and tea? I could see that working really well. <laughs> yeah, I think. <laughs> All right. That, that, um, the, okay. Be, I know you you classic. had a little a little uh, call out from that card. I don't think we can go without mentioning uh, Brendan Allen against Kyle. Uh, oh, what a great fight! Yeah. That I mean, for me so far, that's a top five fight of the year contender. I thought that that fight was a total knockout. Amazing. Loved it. Um, Total blast. You know, decision could have gone either way, but really looking forward to seeing either of those guys again. Brendan Allen, of course, was on my radar a little bit. Uh, Kyle, less so, but he is now. Yeah, Kyle actually underestimated his stand-up. He looked extremely sharp in that department. He's a real, real prospect. I actually called him a regional prospect on last week's show, and I was wrong. He's he's a real prospect, a UFC-level prospect. And Brendan Allen, who now is 3-0 in the UFC, is looking like you know somebody we can all safely look forward to competing at the upper echelon. Nikolai, let's take a break. We're going to come back and break down UFC 251 for these fools. And Nick... I think you've promised that you're going to pick up the win over me, and I'm very excited about the prospect of it. I'm going to destroy you. Oh, I can't wait. Back on the MMA Geek C-Level Podcast, Nick Braccia, Stan Drive. We're going to get into our draft picks. As you all know, we each take turns picking fighters that are competing on the upcoming card. Whoever ends up with the most number of winning fighters ends up winning the week. We also give some consideration to the overall pick rating because we think we're pretty good at that part of it. Nick, my first pick this time is going to be in the Paige Van Zandt versus Amanda Rebus matchup. Paige Van Zandt. Oh, yeah. So you're picking Paige. Uh, safe to say, definitely. Paige Van Zandt has the classic intangibles that would make the UFC want to promote her. She's pretty blonde and charismatic, even though she has plenty of heart. She doesn't have much in the way of high-level skill. Coming into this fight, having gone 2-3 and three in her last five, she's fighting out of the last fight of her contract, presumably with the hope of joining her husband in the Bellator ranks. She beats largely mid-level opponents, but she's never shown the ability to be competitive against top 15 of fighters of either the strawweight or flyweight divisions. Amanda Rebus is about as hot a prospect as the flyweight women's division can produce. Nine and one in he her boss. career. Hebas, then. Hebas. Jesus. Fair enough. Look at you, Nikolai. Amanda Hebas. Nine and one in her career. Three and zero in the UFC. She's been dominant thus far with wins over Mackenzie Dern and Randa Marcos. Trains an American top team. Has a high level of skill everywhere, and happens to be charismatic. And Nick, if I might say so, very attractive. Of course, she's neither American or blonde, which means the UFC won't likely put their promotional muscle behind her. Uh, Amanda Rebus should have the advantage everywhere in this matchup. The coaches at ATT talk about her like she's a future champion and that's probably for good reason van zatten is being given a difficult matchup since she refused to sign with the ufc before the last battle of her current contract and i expect this to play out as the ufc matchmakers planned it to rebus should win a dominant decision on her way to bigger and better things nick yeah i think amanda hebus goes goes through pvz like a knife through hot butter she's a bad bitch pvc on the other hand uh, is an athletic entertainer 
He best total package prospects. She can strike. She's got good jits and she's mean. You know what I think is going to happen? I think that she very early in the first round is going to start throwing machine gun head kicks that Paige needs to block with that surgically repaired arm. I wouldn't yeah. be surprised if Paige Manzant gets her arm broken for the third or fourth time here. Hebas is fierce. I agree. Uh, really no competition there. And goddamn, bringing the heat today, Nick. I love it. What's your next pick, buddy? Uh, my next pick, I'm going to go right to the co-main event. There's a few uh, choices here for two, and I wonder if this is the, the one that you've got. But I just see no reason why uh, Alexander Volkanovsky versus Max Holloway 2 isn't an exact, uh, absolute exact carbon copy of the first fight. I think Max is battle-worn. He's not old. He's younger than Volkanovsky. But I do believe that he's he's lost a little step, a little pep. Um, and Volkanovsky, in his fights with Max and Aldo, has fought perfectly executes strategy to perfection i think he's going to attack the legs max has never been great at checking kicks i don't see that changing here uh and despite him being 31 to max's 28 in cage years max is way older been in way more wars remember volkanovsky was a rugby player he didn't start really start uh seriously training martial arts until about a decade ago at that point max was already fighting dustin poyer volkanovsky was just starting to dip his toe i just think I think he's fresher. I think he's really smart. I think he fights like a champion. And I just think that I think that Max peaked and is on the way down. I think his style of fighting and his skill set requires him absolutely being um, like incredibly resilient and incredibly precise. And I think both of those have taken a hit over the last 18 months. Yeah, this one was going to be one of my top four picks. It was actually number four on my list, not necessarily at the very top there. But I, I definitely hear where you're coming from on the pick. And Nick, again, you're bringing the heat today. I love it, brother. Um, Volkanovski is very much an effective game planner who has a high level of skill in literally every department. He has a competent stand-up game that he can use to pressure like he did against Chad Mendes. He can point fight like he did against Jose Aldo by staying out of boxing range and landing kicks at a distance. He can combine the two styles like he did against Max Holloway in their first matchup. He can also land takedowns and score with big ground and pound like he did early in his UFC career. Formerly a rugby player, as you alluded to, he weighed literally 100 pounds north of the 145-pound limit at which he now competes. He has the strength and power to back up the adequate speed at a high level of technique. He trains with city kickboxing with the likes of Israel Adesanya and Dan Hooker. Max Holloway essentially cleared out the division on his way to a championship opportunity against Jose Aldo. Aldo handled Max early, only to get overwhelmed by Max's pressure and output late. He was on a 13-fight winning streak, Max was, going into his loss to Dustin Poirier at 155 pounds following his second title defense. Volkanovski and Poirier remain the only men to beat him in the past seven years. His strengths are his size, conditioning, output, takedown defense, and grit. Uh, as far as Max Holloway, at least. His weaknesses include a lack of head movement, man. He just he keeps his head exactly where it is, and he keeps getting bopped, and he doesn't mind so much, but that proved to be an issue against Volkanovski. He doesn't have much power in his hands, Nick, and he's also kind of a slow starter. Those are his other weaknesses. In their first fight, when Max was backing up, Volkanovski would blitz forward with heavy hands. When Max was at range, Alex would land solid calf kicks. Max had to switch stances to southpaw to stop taking kicks to his left leg. But then every time Max would come in with that southpaw jab, Volkanovski was ready with a slip crosshook combo. So it's like Volkanovski was ready for every stage of Max's game. Once Max switched back to orthodox and started to feel the urgency, he started having more success in the fourth and fifth rounds, but he was still largely outlanded in those rounds. Alex took some shots, but still had the counter to Max's counters. Even though Max has the height advantage, Alex has the reach edge, and that showed in the first fight. Um, in the final two rounds in particular, Max picked up the output and pressure, which made the fight closer than it was in the first three stanzas, but I gave Max the fifth round only. I think Max has a solid chance at winning the fight, but he has to move his head, which he's never really been good at, and he must pressure starting from at least round two. He can't pressure, wait for that pressure game to start in the fourth or fifth round. It's possible that his team put together the right game plan, but I don't have confidence in his coaches. Plus, Max admitted to doing all of his training on his own for this one with his training with his, with his trainers kind of watching live on Zoom. All the while, Volkanovski was training with Dan Hooker in New Zealand, which is a COVID-free country at this point. So I favor Volkanovski to pick up three rounds before the fifth round starts. I don't think he's likely to finish Max as he said he wants to, but judging by what we saw in the last fight and the fact that Alex is the only one with a proper training camp behind him, I favor him with confidence as well, Nick. My next pick, I'm going to take Peter Yen 
to wow. be Jose Aldo. Wow, this is my 11th pick. <laughs> is it really that that late in the process? And I, and I do kind of overall hear where you're coming from. It, you know, well, you haven't even heard you haven't you haven't heard where I'm coming from yet. <laughs> no, I, I I have an idea because we've spoken about Aldo's progression lately, and also Yan's. Uh, Yan starts the first round slow to calibrate his opponent's timing. He has to do that because he's going to be the slower fighter more often than not at 135 pounds, and timing is what beats speed. He makes up for it by being the bigger man in most cases and having serious power because of it. He's a pressure counterfighter, uses fakes to pressure his opponents against the cage, forcing them to defensively throw something that Yan can counter with power. Once his opponent throws a punch from his back foot, he blocks and counters with a combination. That, that's part of the key, that Yan doesn't really just counter with a one-shot. Peter is proficient at combining his punches with kicks and knees in a combo. He's also brilliant at exiting a clinch with heavy strikes, usually elbows, knees, and kicks. Since he's usually the bigger man, he'll go for the takedown once dominance is established. Much like Poirier and George Masvidal, uh, Jorge Masvidal, he likes to throw the jab right cross before switching his stance and throwing that left cross, which really always surprises opponents for both those, for all three of these men. Uh, he's overall comfortable switching stances throughout a fight. If the finish doesn't come through, he's likely to score multiple knockdowns as his size, pressure, and power wears on opponents as the fight gets into deep waters. Jose Aldo is the most accomplished featherweight in UFC history, having fought in 11 UFC title fights before Nick. After going 25-1 and in his career, Aldo's dropped to a 3-5 and record over the past five years. Sometimes I hear people say, and I think you've said this before, that he should retire and they don't want to see him fight anymore. I think that's harsh, considering he looked really good against Holloway early uh, in two of those losses and lost a close decision to featherweight champ Alex Volkanovsky, and he lost a very close decision to Marlon Moraes. He looks excellent early and often fatigues by the third round, which lowers his output and leaves him vulnerable to an aggressive opponent who has the endurance to take advantage of a tiring Aldo. He shouldn't really be fighting for a title since he's never won a fight in this division, and he's on a losing streak. He certainly lost the first and third rounds against Moraes, I thought. Over the years, Aldo's style has developed quite a bit. He was an aggressive finisher early in his career, focusing on heavy kicks and knees. After starting to face tougher opposition in the UFC, he realized that he could not afford to be as aggressive early without tiring late. As he got less aggressive, he started shifting his focus from energy-sapping kicks and flying knees to his boxing. He has an excellent jab, some of the best head movement in the sport, and excellent counters. He attacks the body well, but most of his kicks and knees are a thing of the past. Aldo's advantage is that he fought much higher level of competition overall and that he's faster and more technical for the first 10 minutes of a fight, but he doesn't have the same power, reflexes, or will to fight once he's tired and taking damage. Yan has a much shorter flight from Tiger Muay Thai and Phuket compared to Aldo coming in from Rio de Janeiro in Brazil. We're talking about 6-hour flight time for Yan versus 20 hours for Aldo. Also, Yan had an average of 1.5 knockdowns per 15 minutes. That is incredibly high. Aldo, in comparison, has less than 0.5 knockdown average per 15 minutes. They both absorb about 6 strikes per minute, but Yan lands 62% more significant strikes per minute. Aldo starts strong and fades late, but Yan starts slow and increases his output as the fight goes on. Yan is 27 and has not taken much wear and tear throughout his career, while Aldo is a weathered 33 years old. I think Aldo has a great shot in the matchup in a three-round fight. I would probably pick him in such a matchup, but Peter is at his best late in the fight. All these factors leads me to the conclusion that Aldo's only shot is landing a liver punch or a monster headshot in the first two rounds, but that's very hard to do against an opponent who has a great chin, serious grit, and excellent endurance. I like Yan to finish in the third or fourth round after Aldo looks competitive early, whether Peter Yan deserves to be champion, considering Marlon Marais and Aljamain Sterling have better names in the resumes, is a separate question. I look forward to seeing him against Sterling, who will match him in size and endurance, and has a serious ground game advantage. Nick, talk to I me. I think this was a really, really hard, hard one to call, but maybe it's wishful thinking on my part. I think it's it's maybe the fight on the card I'm most excited about. Watching their last fights, Yan fights really heavy. He plants heavy. He doesn't have the footwork of Marais, I don't think. Um, if this is a huge if, if Aldo, Aldo throws leg kicks, calf kicks, I think he can get um, ahead early and do some damage. Yan, as you mentioned, is not a fast starter. We've also seen Yan put on his butt by Dodson, who does have incredible hand speed, but I don't think Aldo is that much slower than Dodson. And we saw Yan get his knees buckled by a, uh, a Faber, Uriah Faber counter, and Faber's not exactly known, you know, for his massive power. 
Um, I look at what Aldo did with that shot to Jeremy Stevens or the multiple shots to Moicano and the Moicano uh, finishing instincts that he had. So I think Aldo is a, sh- a sharper striker than Dodson, uh, for example, and that he's got more weapons, but he has to throw kicks if he wants um, to win this fight. His head movement, again, as you mentioned, was really great against uh, against Moraes. Aldo's not going to be as hittable as favorite. I don't think he's going to be as hittable as Jimmy Rivera. And I don't think that um, Jan hit Rivera all that much. Um, a, you know, Aldo also managed distance very well against uh, Moraes, and he had that... Uh, three-inch reach advantage, um, which is which is going to be about the same. I thought he did a great job managing distance in that fight. The real issue here is that Aldo hasn't been in five-round fight since the Frankie Edgar fight at UFC 200 and never with this weight cut. So it's five rounds. It's also in the on an island in the uh, essentially the, the desert part of the part of the world. Um, and I believe this fight will be taking part in the warm part of the day. Um, so it's going to get, it's going to get hot out there. I think one of two things happens. I think Aldo either, um, gets him out of there in the, like the second round or that Jan, uh, wins a decision or finishes late. My heart here is with Jose Aldo. I'd love to see it. I'd love to see Aldo come out there and throw 15, uh, leg kicks in the, in the first round. I think he could really light up Jan. Um, if he, if he does that, but all of those injuries to the foot motorcycle accident injury, the subsequent issues with his knees, I just, it, de- it depends on, you know, if, if he just goes for broke and shows up as, uh, you know, throw caution to the wind, use all my tools, Aldo, I think, I think he's in this fight. If not, I think Peter Jan's going to take it. So ever so slightly, I'm going to choose, uh, Peter Jan, uh, uh, I think he's I think he's really good, but I also just, you know, this is a tricky thing because it was like Weidman's ascent. Like Jan just he, he doesn't have a, a lot of uh, he doesn't have that signature victory with a lot of great scalps, in my opinion. So we'll we'll find out. I want to know if when if when Aldo touches his chin, you know, what happens after watching him do the funky chicken against Uriah Faber at 42 years old? Yeah, no, I, I do. I do hear what you're saying. Again, Yan is hittable. He looked like he was losing to Jimmy Rivera had it not been for those late round knockdowns. I think in two of the three rounds at least that he was able to get there. So I definitely hear where you're coming from. I just have real issues with Aldo late in the fight, but I could see actually the weight cut helping him there because maybe he's in phenomenal shape since he had to weigh in at 135. Nick, so I definitely hear why. We'll see. Uh, you see, this is a very close fight. I do see the close. I am going to go for our overall scoring, even though I mostly pay attention to winning. Uh, I'm going to I'm going to pick Jan, But like I said, my heart's with Aldo. Yeah, I feel you there. What's your next pick, buddy? Uh, I'm going to go straight up main event um, for this one. Listen, Jorge Masvidal is great. Stepping in on short notice against Kamaru Usman. Um, I think a lot of money is going to come in on Masvidal uh, and he could win. But I really think it'd be a massive upset. Uh, in his career, Masvidal struggled with lesser wrestlers and lesser grapplers than Usman and lightweight ones. Guys like Ali Quinta, who who uh, took it to him in the late in the later rounds after taking a beating in the first. Rustam Kabalov, Ben Henderson, Gil Melendez, all great fighters and very good grapplers, but they're not as big and strong and as accredited as Usman. And Usman's not chinny. Masvidal's really powerful. Um, but is Usman really going to leave his chin hanging at the end of an exchange or is he going to tuck it? you know, bite down on the mouthpiece and smother, smother, smother going for those takedowns. Maybe Masvidal really, you know, he's been, he seemed like a magician these last like two years, but I really think what we're going to see here is an absolute crowd killing smother fest and a shutout for Usman. Now, if Usman decides he wants to have a kickboxing match to prove something to somebody, he's in trouble. Um, but I also don't think on the ground, he has to worry too much about Masvidal's terrific jiu-jitsu. He beat Damian Maya and Rafael Dos Anjos. So I, do I think a Jorge Masvidal uh, victory is impossible? No, but I think it's highly improbable. Yeah, I'm, I'm there with you. I, I like the way Jorge is talking leading up to the fight. It sounds to me like he actually has been there for Dustin Poirier and a couple of other guys that were competing at ATT week in and week out. And outside of those sparring sessions, apparently he's been doing strength and conditioning. So there is reason to believe that Jorge Masvidal might be in shape for this one. 
He has spent the majority of his career as a high-level gatekeeper. If you beat him, you're probably among the best in the promotion. If he beats you, you're not quite ready for the upper echelon. After going 5-2 at lightweight in the UFC, he moved to welterweight. Once again, split decisions seemed like the only way he could be defeated at 170 as he lost to Benson Henderson, Lorenz Larkin, and Damian Maya in nail-biters. After getting handled by Stephen Thompson, everything changed. He came back from a year-and-a-half layoff with a fresh beard, long locks, and finished there until Ben Askren and Nate Diaz. He's always had the skill to beat just about anyone, but suddenly he was willing to apply those skills with urgency with spectacular results. After 16 years, almost 50 fights, and more than a dozen losses, Jorge Masvidal is a star. After negotiations fell through for a welterweight title shot against Usman, Jorge found himself in the backseat of his career again. That is, until Gilbert Burns, who was scheduled to main event UFC 251 against Usman, was pulled from the card because of a positive COVID test. Suddenly, Masvidal is in the main event on short notice for his first major title shot. Kumar Usman entered the UFC on the strengths of his 8-1 record as he collected the Ultimate Fighter live season crown. He went on to beat everyone in his path on the way to his title win over Tyron Woodley last year. In his first title defense against Colby Covington, he vanquished the only other seemingly untouchable fighter in the division. He used body shots and some grit to push through tough moments against Colby before scoring a fifth round TKO. Covington walked out with his first knockout loss as well as a broken jaw. Usman, who lost more than one round in a fight for the first time in his UFC career in that one, got only his third finish in the promotion and walked out with the welterweight strap still around his waist. He has honed his craft at Hard Knocks 365 under Henry Hoof, but he relocated to Elevation Fight Team in Colorado for this one. Even though Masvidal starts his, started his MMA career nine years earlier than did Usman, Usman is only younger by two years. Masvidal would probably come in with more power in his hands than Usman, who was rocked a few times by the relatively less powerful Covington. Masvidal will have the experience advantage, but he'll be outgunned in strength and size. While George spent the majority of his career at 155, Usman could never dream of making that lightweight limit. Masvidal may not have had a complete training camp, but he has likely been helping teammates at ATT preparing for their bouts, including Poirier, who headlined last uh, weekend's card or a couple weeks ago. Not only did Usman have a complete camp, but he did so 7,000 feet above sea level, so he should be in superb shape for this one. I would have picked Usman regardless in this matchup, but it certainly makes it harder to predict the Masvidal win given the short notice he's had to prepare. Usman should be able to land body shots on the feet and finish Masvidal late. But I think the more likely route for Usman, like you said, is to take Jorge down and eliminate the risk that exchanging strikes would bring. The strategy that Usman employs will decide whether or not he can finish George late in the fight. But I've got Usman all the way here, buddy. I'm in agreement with you. My next pick is going to be in the Carol Rosa versus Vanessa Mello matchup. Carol Rosa is a training partner of Jessica Andrade. He made her USC debut last year and looked impressive against an undefeated opponent as she landed a staggering 11.4 strikes per minute neck that might be the highest rate that I've ever seen. She does a great job of starting most combos with a jab, mixing in leg kicks, and countering her opponent's counters. Sometimes she accomplishes all of the above in one exchange. The problem is that she stays in the pocket and takes almost as many shots as she lands. She's actually extremely lucky with how things played out for her over the last eight months. She was scheduled to fight Julia Vila several times, who's a scary lady at 135, but she had to pull out last month due to travel restrictions and instead gets this much more beatable opponent. Vanessa Mello is 0-2 in the octagon with losses to contender Irina Aldana and prospect Tracy Cortez. This is a more favorable style matchup than the last two, I think, for her as both fighters are new to the UFC and prefer to exchange strikes. I do still favor Rosa here. She's hittable, but I think her first UFC opponent is a better fighter than Melo, and she looks solid in that matchup. What's your next one, buddy? Uh, completely agree. This is going to be my next pick. Uh, what you've got here is great cardio and non-stop striking against a kind of okay-everywhere fighter who definitely had some tough draws in her, her last two fights. Um, but what, what we're likely to see is Melo, if she doesn't get that, if she does get the takedown, I see Rosa getting up. If she doesn't get the takedown, I see her getting tired and eating three shots for every one. Um, so I think that I think that Rosa takes this fight, um, you know, pretty pretty handily. In fact, I'm not. This one might. If we knew a little bit more, if Mello had maybe lost to some uh, lesser opposition in her first two fights, I think this probably would have been a fight that showed up earlier um, in our picks. But uh, you know. 
we'll see what happens. But I think that we're on the same page here that Rose's Rose's output is going to overwhelm Mello. Okay, my pick, huh? Yes, sir. Uh, we are going with Mr. Finland. Um, Makwan Americani uh, taking on the Scotsman, uh, Danny Henry, who's no slouch. Um, but uh, Mr. Finland is next level um, on the ground and with his wrestling. And he should he can get into trouble on the feet, as we saw with Shane Burgos. But Shane Burgos, even though he's hittable, um, if you're not also an elite uh, you know, an elite striker. Um, he's going to probably overwhelm you as he did. Uh, uh, and Americani was also quite tired. Um, I think as that fight went on, but I think as long as he's controlling and dictating, uh, the where the one and the what of this fight, that it should be a relatively, um, easy uh, decision or possibly a submission victory. Um, in the you know in the first couple rounds, yeah, I'm there with you. I would not be surprised with an early submission here at all. Makwan Armikani has had kind of prospect status in the UFC since his debut, but he lost to the only two other legitimate prospect level opponents that he's faced in the UFC, and Arnold Allen and Shane Burgos. The charismatic Swede has a Greco-Roman wrestling background, as you alluded to, and relies on his explosiveness on the feet to score points and do damage in between takedowns. He trains under the tutelage of John Cavanaugh, SBG Ireland. You guys know I'm not a fan of that guy. I don't think he's high-level coach at all. But Danny Henry is 2-1 in the UFC with wins over Daniel Tamor and a big upset over Hakeem Duwadu. His UFC losses to Dan Ige, who's become a contender at 145. Like most UFC-level fighters that are relatively unathletic, he has a good gas tank and plenty of heart. He likes to pressure with a high strike output, and when he lacks in speed and power, he makes up for with will. Yeah, I, I'm on the same page. I favor Armikani's athleticism and wrestling over Henry's output in this one. Armikani loses to high-level prospects, and Danny Henry is about the sort of opponent Makwan has been successful against. I expect Armikani to put two rounds in the bag before Henry takes over in round three if he can't find an early finish. My next pick, Nikolai, and by the way, this was going to be my very next one as well. My next one after this is going to be in the Rose Namajunas Jessica Andrade matchup, Nick. I'm curious uh, about your thoughts on this matchup. Rose Namajunas has been at or near the top of the strawweight division since she debuted in the UFC by the way of the Ultimate Fighter eight years ago. She has wins over current top 10, top 15 fighters Angela Hill, Tisha Torres, Michelle Waterson, and Joanna Janjacek. She started her career as a submission specialist, but has made huge improvements in her striking under Trevor Whitman. Coming into this rematch after a 14-month layoff, Rose is facing her last opponent in a rematch, this time in a three-rounder instead of a five-round main event. She trains at Grudge with Justin Gaethje and her husband, Pat Berry. Andrade has been a mainstay in the UFC women's divisions for seven years. After competing at 135, she dropped down to 115, where she was able to realize the championship from her opponent this weekend, Rose. She lost via first-round knockout in an attempt to defend her title against current champ Weili Zhang. Her resume includes wins over Joanna Calderwood, Angela Hill, Claudia Gadelia, Tisha Torres, Carolina Kowalkowicz, and of course, Rose Namajunas. That is just a phenomenal resume at this division. I think Rose's speed, height, and technique advantages made their first fight look like a mismatch until Andrade scored the slam KO. In a five-round fight at favor Andrade's conditioning to take over late for her to score a knockout late in the fight, in a three-rounder at favor Rose's many advantages. Andrade has not really improved her technique in several years, but she remains a bullish pressure fighter with tremendous power and conditioning. Rose's mental state will probably be the ultimate deciding factor here. She lost to Andrade in devastating fashion in her last fight, plus she lost several family members to the COVID-19 virus. Still, I'm sticking with Rhodes, who just needs to keep it together for 15 minutes in this one. What's your next pick, buddy? Yeah, I. Well, no, I gotta, I gotta chime in with my perspective. With my perspective here, Stan, you're just gonna steamroll me like that. The way I'm gonna steamroll you on Saturday night. I like when it. When I Nick. shut you out. Listen, this is a very uh, tricky one to call. Like Rose knows what not to do. <laughs> um, but my feeling is, if she fights, if this fight happens and she gets in the cage through COVID, through losing family members, through maybe being, I don't want to say not emotionally strong, because I think she's extremely strong to get in the cage and do what she does. I think she's an awesome person, but I also think that she's the kind of fighter, and we saw this with the fucking Connor Buss incident, 
if she feels like she is not if she's not ready to get into that cage and be a cage fighter that she doesn't let herself in and i really really respect that i will not be surprised if this fight falls off of the card if this fight is on the card if she gets into that cage i think that i look at it this way in her last two fights jessica andrade has won about six seconds of her last two fights it just so happened that for those six seconds rose was upside down and getting dumped on her head If she can avoid that, the striking clinic that she put on was video game combo worthy. I think she should be able to um, really tag Andrade, maybe finish her and uh, and put on another, you know, put on another clinic. It's all about composure. If she finds herself up against the cage, if she finds Andrade in Andrade in with some crate, you know, with a single and about to put her on, you know, like hoist her up upside down over her head she might panic but i gotta believe she's had 14 months to think about that moment to train for it and in her environment in colorado and with her athleticism and the skills that she has and what we saw her do in the two fights against joanna um i think rose namajunas is is uh is strong enough all i mean that in every sense of the word um to get the victory here and and um you know get that get that l avenged yeah yeah i'm very much there with you buddy but Stan takes that pick. I'm surprised. Okay. Are you right, surprised? Man, was that the... not going to be one of your next couple? It was, yeah, it was, it was going to be one. I just thought, it, I thought it was one you were going to lay lower on because of the, uh, what we call the intangibles. Got it. So there's, oh gosh, there's some other really interesting uh, fights and some that I'm excited to talk about. But I think that the next one that's most likely to get me a W, even if I'm less interested in discussing it, is um, picking Leonardo Santos against Roman uh, Bogatov. Santos, the 40-year-old who has win over over Kevin Lee and other uh, 155 luminaries who shows up every now and again <sighs> to get some amazing victory and then vanishes into the, you know, into the ether, um, is taking on a, a capable guy in, Ro- in, in Roman Bogatov. But what's, Santos has proven that he can hang with the top 15, possibly the top 10 of the division. And he keeps showing up and ending up in these fights with dudes that people don't know very well. Um, it's a little bit like uh, he's kind of like the lightweight Michelle Pizarras, um, if I'm pronouncing his name correctly in terms of that. But I just think that um, I think he does what he does. I think he shows up. <laughs> I think he wins again. And then, you know, uh, who knows who he fights next. But I just I think he's um, I think he's going to be a better, a better everywhere, more experienced, more tricks up his sleeve fighter. I don't think he's going to show up at 40 and suddenly, um, you know, and suddenly not be the guy who we've seen previously. And I don't think that Bogotov is the dude to stop this, this strange winning streak. Yeah. I'm largely with you on this matchup as well. Santos is a stalwart at Nova and in Brazil. He's a close training partner of Jose Aldo. Actually at 40 years old, he's undefeated in the UFC dating back to his debut in 2013, but he's literally competed seven times in seven years. He's finished the likes of Anthony Rocco Martin, Kevin Lee, Stevie Ray, largely a kickboxer, but he does apparently hold a very high-level jiu-jitsu pedigree. I yes. expect him to try and keep this fight on the feet against Roman Bogatov, who generally likes you know to go for takedowns. He likes that top position. He's an undefeated M1 champion who spent most of his pro career in that Russian promotion. Um, he looks kind of amateurish on the feet, tends to pressure forward into his opponent's strikes on the feet and then get an ugly takedown before getting to work on the ground. I do. I favor the 40-year-old Brazilian Apisa Bogatov on the feet in this one. Uh, it's literally a striker versus grappler matchup, and I, I don't think that uh, Santos is going to go for takedowns uh, here. I don't think so. I don't think you can say that Santos isn't a grappler. Yeah, though, I do hear you there. That, that, that's fair. I just feel like th- those are the avenues with which they will choose to compete. In yes, this one. yes. Um, Bogatov's opponent, although experienced, have shown no ability to stop a takedown, and Santos has not been taken down since his UFC debut seven years ago. On top of that, Bogatov is way shorter and is at a reach disadvantage with his relatively low level of kickboxing, and that's exactly where Santos shines. I guess, this is, like you said, there's a chance that Santos shows up looking 40 years old for some reason, but I'm giving him the edge here. My next pick, Nikolai, and this was you know one of my next couple, um, my next pick is going to be in the Hulan Paiva versus Zalgas Zumagalov matchup. I look at you. What, what's that? What, were you were you not going to choose this one soon? I was just no. I was just digging your Eastern Bloc pronunciation. Fair enough. Uh, so 
Zumagalov is a solid prospect from Kazakhstan. He's fast, pressure striker, sets up his offense with fakes and feints. 7-1 and one in his last eight fights, including a win over former UFC title channel challenger Ali Bagautinov and uh, current UFC fighter Tyson Nam. He has plenty of five-round experience, and having held the ABC flyweight title, his takedown defense is not great, but he does a good job of getting back to his feet. Paiva is a solid prospect, fly, uh, flyweight prospect, even though he is 1-2 and two in the UFC. His UFC debut was very close split decision loss to contender Kaikar France, and then a cut stoppage to Rogeria Bunturin a couple of minutes into the competitive bout of his of his second UFC fight. It was you know easily a back-and-forth fight. He's coming off his first UFC win against Mark De La Rosa, and he made a count with an impressive knockout in the second round. Look, both are good strikers who like to pressure, but I'm giving the edge to Paiva, who will have a height and reach advantage in this one. He also has actual UFC experience. He trains on and off again with Team Alpha Male, so I'm hoping he'll go for takedowns because I think that's probably his easiest avenue to victory to score some big points here. I like Paiva on this one. Largely the same. I think this is, I had this further down the list, but uh, I, I share your perspective. Um, next fight. This is one what I'm fights I'm most excited about for the card. Um, I'm going to pick Vulcan Ojmadir, uh, Ojdemir to take on, oh my God, what's this guy's first name? Jiri. Prajaka. Jiri. Jiri uh, Prajaka. Really, uh, really interesting one. You got Prajaka out of, out of Reason, where he's fought, uh, Horizon, where he's fought uh, a bunch of, you know, interesting guys. He had a highlight reel KO against CB Dalloway. He knocked out the always durable punching bag, Fabio Maldonado. Um, and he uh, avenged a defeat to King Mo. Uh, King Mo was exhausted. Uh, and he, it was kind of a combination get punched and f- fall fell over. Um, you know, he's not. I'm not that impressed with those wins, but he is a very athletic brawler with an orthodox style. Um, seems to he's got a, a high kick, but he really seems to to like to punch. And the fact of the matter is, if Ozdemir beat uh, beat Rakic, uh not too long ago. I feel like Reykjavik is a is just a better all around version of, of Prajaka, and I think this is a tough draw um, in his first fight. I guess apparently Prajaka was offered Tiago Santos, and uh, said no, he wanted to start lower down. Um, from there, I mean, I don't and think Vulcan was the guy lower is, down. Wow, I know that's he's not exactly. It's like well, it's not. Yeah, <laughs> I'm like, what was smile? What was smiling Sam doing? Like, there's no joke. You know, man. like was <laughs> this is a tough. This is a tough, tough draw. But Ojdemir, who's had some tough breaks, the only fight where he really got like owned was Cormier, who has you know this amazing fight IQ and and wrestling acumen. He looked very good for a while against Santos. He fought terrifically against Dominic Reyes. Um, you know he's he's mostly a, a punching game, but I like his body kicks. I think he's got pretty good body kicks. Um, I think that he should be able to win a decision or, or hurt Prashika with a with a counter shot, perhaps, or hurt or hurt him coming in. Maybe the the kind of like awkward, like hunching, lumbering style uh, throws him off. But I've been really impressed with Ojdemir. He feels like he prepares. He, he's a seasoned vet. He's got good composure. I really feel like this is his this is his fight to lose. I'll be very very surprised. I haven't seen nothing in Prashika's resume or in those big wins of his. Uh, besides, you know, a, a degree of durability, but let's face it, like Dalloway Maldonado, and he was knocked out by King Mo. Um, although I didn't see, I saw his victory over Mo, but not when he was knocked out. So I don't know if he got caught on the feet or if it was a ground and pound scenario. It was years prior um, to that. But I thought it was on the feet. It was, it was a long time ago. Um, it just, I, I still think Ojdemir's pretty friggin' elite. And I don't think, uh, I, I just, I don't think that this guy is going to be the one to take his spot. Yeah, I, I agree with you on just about every level, except that I think you're underselling Jury a little bit. He is, you know, pretty legit prospect. I think coming into the UFC, like you said, he's got wins over King Molawal, Fabio Maldonado, oh, and yeah. CB Dalloway. Yeah, I don't. I'm not. I don't think he's a chump. I don't think he's a chump. Yeah, no, Oj, no, I, do, I just I think Oj, I think Ojdemir is very elite. Yeah, no, I, I definitely hear you there, and that's the reason why I'm picking Ojdemir. Um, Jury coming into this fight is on a 10 fight win streak. His last eight by knockout. Nick, 25 of his 26 wins have been by finish, 23 of them by knockout. He has okay dick takedown defense, but his offense is almost exclusively with boxing combos. I mean, I have never yep. seen that man throw less than three shots 
at a time. Like, he consistently throws combos. The only other offensive strike I've ever seen him throw outside of hands is his flying knee, which I don't think I've seen him land yep. yet. Vulcan is number seven at light heavyweight. Wins over Latifi and Alexander Rakic recently. Started his UFC career on a streak before being rushed into a title shot against DC, like you said. Following that loss, he was finished by Anthony Smith and lost a close one to Dominic Reyes. He's a kickboxer with heavy hands and a solid chin. Even though he isn't fast, he makes so far with timing, especially when they're in course, course quarters. He just has this thudding uh, right and left hook. I think it's a shame that Jiri's being matched up with an elite light heavyweight in his debut because he has the potential to be possibly something special with the right buildup. He tends to get knockouts, but Vulcan has a solid chin. He tends to be the better boxer, but Vulcan's strength is in the stand-up realm as well. And Vulcan has more weapons there, even though he's significantly slower and, and it's possible that Jiri's left hook could be the kill shot here. It's possible he lands it. Even though he is the bigger, faster man here, Jiri is, I expect Vulcan to put his high-level experience to good use as he gets rid of his second light heavyweight prospect to solidify his light heavyweight status. Yeah, I agree. And I think, I mean, Oshimir's footwork and his ability to circle, like, tell me if I'm wrong, but he seems like a guy who's who's who's, who's very effective at circling out of the pocket. And I feel like he's going to be on his bike enough so long as he, I don't think he's going to get too tired over three rounds. Um he, sh- he should be able to circle away from these blitzes. Yeah, I. The, the thing is, his footwork is not really what he's known for. He's He is kind of a slower, plodding heavyweight. So I do have some concern, but he's going to counter. He's not just going to like stand there and wait to be clocked. And the fact that he's got a solid chin and he's not way past his prime, yeah. like most of Jiri's recent opponents, is going to make a difference here too, is, is uh, kind of my thought process. Yep. Okay. Um, my next pick, and... This is where shit gets really tough. We've only got three fights left. Um, I'm going to go with Martin Day to beat Dave Grant. Martin Day actually trains out there in Hawaii with Max Holloway and the crew. Yeah, he's on Zoom. He's on Zoom sparring with Max. No fucking joke. Uh, He's a slick striker but relies a bit too much on blocking instead of slipping, which makes him more hittable than he should be. It's kind of like uh, I think if he is sparring and he's using those full boxing gloves, he's blocking most of his opponent's offense. But with those small MMA gloves, they're going to slip through, and that's kind of what we saw in his last fight. But his offense is diverse, including spinning attacks, sidekicks, as he continuously attacks the body, which I really love. He lost a controversial split decision to Team Alpha Male's Li Ping Liang in his UFC debut. David Grant has only been able to make it to four fights uh, since his UFC debut back in 2013 as a tough finalist. He had four canceled bouts in that time due to injuries and staph infection. He beat Marlon Vera and recently Grigori Popov, but has three UFC losses by submission. He's largely a grappler, but has done a solid job in improving his stand-up and wrestling to take advantage of his submission chops. This one is extremely close on paper, even though Day is almost a 2-1 favorite. I do favor Day to use his footwork to to kind of outslip and avoid takedowns. I wouldn't be surprised if Grant can pressure into takedowns, though, and, and pick up a tough decision victory. Cool. With you 100%, I'm all about the Hawaiian um, in this one. Yep. Uh, my next pick, and the, the last two left are very, very tough fights, really but they're are. ones I'm really excited about. I'm going to very, very tentatively, and I, this is one where I hadn't even decided until uh, we're doing the show. I'm going to pick Marcin Tabura over Maxim uh, Grishin. Uh, I mean, it's a really interesting matchup. Grishin is it's his UFC debut. He's 36 years old. Uh, he's part of Akmat Fight Club out of Grozny in Chechnya. Uh, although I think they have camps everywhere. That's that team that's bankrolled by Ramzan Katarov, yep. um, who essentially runs Chechnya. He's a goddamn warlord, um, Nikolai. He may be a listener, so I'm just going to say he has a very <laughs> interesting. He has a very he has a very interesting Instagram. Page. Our president would never let him get to you, Nick. Never. <laughs> that Christian is a, uh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> He's really a talented, athletic, but here's the keyword here, light heavyweight. Yeah. He's got good killer instinct, really good stand-up. I, I like the guy. I like the guy a lot. He's only been KO'd once at light heavyweight by Magomed uh, Akeliev, who we saw through his firepower, what he did when he floored Ayan Kutulaba. Yep. Um, but Tabura, while not an exceptional heavyweight, is a real natural heavyweight. And he's got a terrific chin. The guys that have finished him are massive. They're the kinds of guys who cut to get to 260. And I feel like through, you know, through his size um, and, and durability, 
because he's not the side, you know, it's not the black beast or Sakai standing across from him mm. that, uh, that Tybura will probably, I mean, if he can land, there's the chance he's gonna, you know, he's going to hurt this guy just based on being, you know, if we're looking at the other weight classes, essentially maybe three weight classes worth ahead of him. Um, if, if MMA had weight classes like boxing did uh, at know, least that every much. 10 pounds or something. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and like Tibur is not, you know, his 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 uh, wrestling game isn't bad. I mean, not that Derek Lewis has great takedown defense or anything, but he had the Black Beast in mount. He was winning a lot of that fight. So I just if I really think that you know, Christian showing up uh, for the first time in the UFC at 36 just against a massive dude. I mean, I'm, what I'm going to say is I withhold my right to change to change this pick when I see them at the face off. Yeah to see the size to see the size differential um but looking at the body type and the size uh of maxime in the tape versus the size of tabura i just it's a it's a big dude and it doesn't seem like he's got that you know it doesn't seem like he's got black beast ground and pound power even though he seems like a very talented powerful light heavyweight so that's you know i'm no i'm no big fan of tabura but moving up to heavyweight from light heavyweight you know is is tough there's big big boys up there yeah I'm, it is a really really tough matchup there's a reason it's one of our last two picks um after starting his career at three and one tibura was not able to compete with some of the upper echelon heavyweights lost to verdum lewis abdurahimov augusto sakai he happens to have an excellent record against russian fighters though as he made his way into the ufc through the m1 promotion holds wins uh in the ufc over andre alovsky and sergey spivak he recently switched camps actually to Syndicate MMA, Nick, which I think uh, I think you're a big fan of. Oh, holy in, cow! Yeah, yeah, I didn't know that. John Wood before his last fight uh, against Payback. Uh, Grishin is making his UFC debut at heavyweight on nine days' notice, even though he has spent the majority the majority of his career at 205. Even though he has seven losses, he's actually 23 two and two since 2011. So really, if you only count the seven last seven years of his career, he's really a spectacular, oh, I'm sorry, the last nine years of his career, he's a spectacular record. He's a kickboxer with solid speed, deadly yeah. power in his right hand. The 36-year-old competed successfully in PFL where he gave Jordan John- Johnson his first loss. I'm edging towards Grishin ever so slightly, and I feel the same way, like I might just change huh. my pick. I just feel like, I know it's short notice, I know he's gonna be the much lighter man in this matchup. I expect him to weigh in probably around 230, but he does have a lot of high-level experiences himself. Grozny is not very far where he trains from Abu Dhabi, as is Vegas where Tybura is is coming in from. And I I do think that Tybura can land takedowns and and possibly win this fight based on just his size alone, but I'm going to give Grishin's right-hand power the slightest of edges. But again, I, I reserve the right to change my opinion on that one. I would not be surprised if that face-off makes me switch picks well, here. The other, I mean, the other thing is that when I watch Grishin's tape, some of those, I don't want to say he's in there against cans or suggest that any fights that take place in in that part of the world are fixed, but there were some not in very good shape light heavyweights that I saw that I saw him and I go and I also saw him land some not super flush shots that seemed to melt guys. So I just. In some of some of it, I just question the opposition versus the super high caliber guys that that Tabura has been in there with. That is very but fair, but I do think you have to factor in the fact that he's competed his last uh, something like eight fights in PFL, which is pretty right. solid level opposition overall. These are like a bunch of great prospects that the PFL happened to have gotten their hands on first. Uh-huh. They tend to be like monster Russian prospects or Jordan Johnson, who was undefeated in the UFC and then went over to PFL and lost to, to, uh, uh, to Grishin. So, you know, it, it, there's an argument to be made that his last 10 fights alone uh, show a lot uh, about his improvements and about yeah. his level of competition. Nick, we've got the tiebreaker left 13 fights on this one. It's a big card. The matchup between Elizio Zaleski dos Santos and Muslim Salikov is all that's left. Salikov is three. Could and be one. fight of the night, man. Yeah, that could very be fight well of the could night. be. Really could. Salikov is three and one in the UFC, but those four fights have spanned a period of three years. The Dagestani fighter is largely a striker that relies on his speed and explosiveness because he doesn't have the highest output. Nick, he only lands two strikes per minute in his UFC tenure. That, that's like impressive that he's a winning fighter with that kind of uh, rate. I mean, it just shows the power he has. He's trained with Mark Henry and Extreme Couture in the past, but I haven't been able to figure out where he's currently training. 
Zaleski Dos Santos has an impressive 8-2 UFC record. He's known as a striker with a capoeira background, but he also holds a BJJ black belt. His prospect status is on the line in this one as the American top team fighter recently lost to Li Jingliang before beating Alexei Kunchenko. He hasn't had the chance to face elite UFC competition yet, but time is running out. He's 33. Definitely now is the time, I think, after this matchup, if he can get a win here. I expect Dos Santos to outpoint Salikov even if he chooses not to go for a takedown. He can finish Muslim on the ground where the risk is much lower against the Dagestani striker, but it won't be easy to get that takedown. But if Muslim can hurt him a couple times, we might just see a replay of Zaleski's fight against Li Jingliang. So this easily, easily could go either way. There's a reason you and I left it for the very, very last pick of the night. Um, yeah, I'm going to go with Salikov just because I like him a little bit more. And I feel like I feel like Zaleski has a questionable fight IQ. And if they're if the spinning shift when this I have a feeling that when the when I think he can be baited into a spinning shit fight and that he'll lose the spinning shit fight. I hear that. That's that's certainly possible. Again, Salikov is extremely explosive. I just, you know, the, the output, I just I can see Dos Santos throwing kicks and keeping it largely a kicking range. I think in that boxing range is where it's really fucking dangerous. That's where Muslim is super dangerous. Uh, but yeah, I just I can see Dos Santos getting away with throwing a bunch of kicks from a distance. And honestly, he should have a huge advantage on the ground. All he has to do is finish that takedown, and he should be able to get a finish there. So he has a couple avenues to win, but I definitely hear where you're coming from. Zaleski does not seem like the same man he once was. That'll do it for the picks, Nick. Let's take a break, come back. Wait, I'm going to go. Wait, 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 wait. Talk wait, wait. to me. I'm going to gonna Salikov by spinning back fist uh, at 321 of the first round. I you heard fucking me. like it, Nick. And obviously, we'll only bring this up in the next episode if you're exactly right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that'll do it for our picks, Nick. Let's take a break, come back, and give these guys our betting recommendations. We are back for the MMA Geeks betting guide. Nick, I know you said you don't have any bets to make for this event, but I've got a couple of recommendations. I like Kumaro Usman, Alexander Volkanovsky, and Leonardo Santos parlay $24 to win 51. I also recommend a bet on Rebos, Amanda Rebos by decision at plus 130. She is a minus 600 favorite against Paige Van Zandt here, but by decision, plus 130, I think Van Zandt can certainly survive to it. It's worth a $30 investment to win 40 on the heavy favorite otherwise. And then Vulcan Ozdemir, I think he's likely to beat Jiri if he does beat Jiri by decision. So I like him at plus 380 on the scorecards, $13 to win 50 bucks. And that'll do it for my betting recommendations. Uh, Nikolai, it's going to be a phenomenal event, man. I cannot I'm wait. So excited. Cannot waste um, this one. Yeah, my I like I am interested in the narrative of nearly every fight on this card. There's only one or two that I'd be comfortable like reading the recaps. My big concern though is that like a card often only feels as good as its main event. And if Jorge Masvidal spends 25 minutes on his back in the Abu Dhabi heat, yeah, with with Kamaru Usman's shoulder in his chin, people <laughs> people are going to be bummed. But I think there's a real good chance that that's how it ends. That said, there's the undercard is terrific. Yeah. There's new fighters that are that are no one has ever heard of before that are gonna, that are explosive action fighters that carry, you know, and then pack a punch. There are terrific Russian fighters on this card. There's Mr. Finland. Um, I'm you've, like the the psychological warfare um, again, uh, just rose within herself. Like what's going to happen in that fight? True. Um, like what Aldo shows up. There are so many great narratives. Does Amanda Hebus just like push page fully onto Instagram? Does does Max have anything <laughs> left, or is it just academic? There, it's just a uh, a cornucopia, a veritable cornucopia of stories um, that I'm really interested in seeing play out. Yeah, me me as well. And look, we could be talking next week about Jorge Masvidal being UFC world champion. It is 
possible. The man has literally turned everything around, but I do think the level of opposition he's faced in his last three fights is very different. From what I understand, though, he did fly in a bunch of wrestlers when he thought that he was competing against Kumar Usman uh, several weeks ago. From what I understand, he's been staying in the gym. I mean, he has a shot here, I think, as much a shot as any short-notice fighter, I think, can have against Kumar Usman. And I will say one thing. Talking about Masvidal's takedown defense, I rewatched that fight against Damian Maia. First of all, I absolutely think that Masvidal deserved that win. He did all the damage in all three rounds, took zero damage, but did spend about half of each round uh, with Damian Maia on his back. Here's the thing. Damian Maia wasn't really able to take him down cleanly. He had to latch onto his back because he couldn't really finish takedowns. Damian Maia even pulled guard once or twice early in that fight because takedowns against Masvidal was so hard to get. So I, I can see the possibility with uh, how prophetic of a takedown finisher as Damian Maia is, I could see the possibility that Jorge Masvidal defends those first several takedowns and that Usman feels like it's too energy-sapping to keep going for them, which can make this into a much more competitive fight, especially with Masvidal's new mindset of just, like, smashing motherfuckers and, and not holding back at all. But, yeah, I mean, there's so much to look forward to. Max Holloway, again, like, there are slight adjustments he can make and he can win this fight. But I just don't I don't trust him to make those adjustments. And Jose Aldo is going to be the quicker, the more technical fighter than Peter Yan, the faster fighter than Peter Yan by a good margin until he tires. Will that uh, super, the, the extra training that he's doing to cut down to 135, could that be the difference? Could that be enough to get him to the kind of shape that he needs to be to take three or four rounds for Peter Yan? I don't know, man, but I'm, I'm really genuinely excited about almost every fight on this card. Well, I can't wait to text back back and forth with you uh, during it and to talk amazing shit next week as I improve to 3-2-2 two, and two, and therefore champion of the last seven events. Yeah, I, I still got the title, but it's around my waist. Sometimes I put it on my shoulder. Sometimes I snuggle with it before bed. And then well, like when I wake up, it ends up being like under my neck in this uncomfortable position. But it's worth it, Nick. That title... Well, if it's around your waist, then what's going to happen is I'm going to win it. It's going to go to a tailor. He's going to take it out a little bit <laughs> at about eight inches, and then it'll be around my waist. Nick, I, too, have I'll gained t- the COVID-15. I'm like a 35, 36 waist now. I'm, I'm, I'm getting I'm getting bigger, Nick. Oh, maybe we, maybe we could share some clothes, but that's a whole other podcast. Yes, All right, everybody. We'll talk to you later. Have a great weekend, buddy.